21st century, written many books. We are encouraging book sales. So I will have the books. Um, we'll turn that light on. Uh, we'll turn that light on then back there so you see the back. So please uh, come and see us if you want to buy a book. We do encourage everyone to try to pick up a book or two. I know I have three or four. Haven't read them all yet, but I do. I have one. So again, so thank you all for coming. And here's uh, Dr. Jones. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. I was here once before. Uh, at that point, uh, my youngest son was living here. Uh, he was dancing for the Cincinnati Ballet, and uh, I ended up writing a story about why he is no longer dancing for the Cincinnati Ballet. It's called uh, How Meyer Lansky Took Over the Cincinnati Ballet. Uh, and it's uh, about Cincinnati and the role that Cincinnati played in the culture wars. I don't know how familiar you are. Oh, I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, history of the art sector and what they did uh, with the Mapplethorpe exhibit in the early 90s. Anyway, it's a great story. Uh, we lost, of course, because we always lose. Uh, the art center is there because some guy basically broke the obscenity laws here, and the result is uh, uh, the mess that everyone is in right now. So anyway. That is available at culturewars.com. I didn't bring copies, uh, but I did bring copies of other books. Uh, I also uh, miss coming to Cincinnati because I think it's a great city in a lot of different ways. From architecture to uh, landscape, uh, environment, a lot of ways. But we're going to talk about something more current right now. We're going to talk about Roe versus Wade. On May 2nd, 2022, Politico leaked Justice Alito's text of the Dobb decision overturning Roe versus Wade and ending almost 50 years of abortion on demand in the United States. The outrage coming from silly women obsessed with their sins was predictable. The re other reaction was not. Two days after this was leaked, this document was basically stolen from one of, or stolen from the justice. I think we know who did it. I think it was a woman who was one of the uh, liberal justices, uh, clerks, who was married to a man who was best friends with a guy in Politico. Uh, I think we know who did it. Uh, so it was an inside job, and the people who were concerned about this inevitability, about it being overturned new in advance, and they were prepared to uh, react immediately. At this point, within two days, the full force of mainstream media was directed against uh, Clarence Thomas, Justice Alito, and the six judges who uh, basically uh, overturned Roe versus Wade. Uh, there were illegal demonstrations at their house, but they never got the people, those protesters never got prosecuted uh, because at this point we have an attorney general who only does political prosecutions. And I'm talking about Merrick Garland. To show you how bad it is, I got a call from the FBI yesterday, uh, an agent complaining about how the, the whole agency has been captured by these uh, cultural revolutionaries. Anyway, two days later, Rabbi Bogard of St. Louis wrote an article in the, New York, in the San Francisco Chronicle in which he said, beyond being a violation of the human rights of pregnant people, you got that? So if you get pregnant, you know, we're not going to discriminate against you. Limiting access to abortion is an imposition of governmental Christianity on us all and it infringes on the religious liberty of every American Jew. Now this is new. I've been involved in this battle for over 40 years and no one has ever talked this way before. No one, okay? Soon slogan, the slogan, abortion is a fundamental Jewish right began showing up at signs, on signs of pro-abortion rallies. Within a month, 140 Jewish organizations said the same thing. This is new. No one ever said this before. 
before. And if we go back to the beginning of this whole uh, era of American life, uh, you'll find that the New York Times, who was a major player in getting abortion legalized throughout this country, only identified one ethnic group when they were talking about the battle over the two sides of an abortion. And that side was the Catholics. And the New York Times consistently portrayed Catholics as wanting to impose their views on the entire country. Now, this came about because of the efforts of two men, two men, uh, both of them from New York City. One was Bernard Nathanson. You've heard of Bernard Nathanson? The other was Lawrence Lader. They were spearheading a campaign to overturn abortion laws in New York State that began in 1967 when they met at a dinner party and they were th thinking they were going to discuss James Joyce. Instead, they started talking about abortion and the two of them, this was about 1967, two of them felt that because of Griswold versus Connecticut, there might be a chance simply to overturn abortion, abortion laws in New York. Now, Nathanson was a Jew but he was never identified as a Jew. As a matter of fact, the word Jew never appeared in any of the discussions or any of the articles about this battle. The only ethnic designator that appeared in this battle was Catholics. So who were the Catholics fighting? Well, they were fighting a gynecologist, which means a man who has science on his side, okay? And how can we argue with that, right? And uh, he said later on, now he became a Catholic. You know that. Uh, first converted on abortion, and then he converted to Catholicism, largely through the efforts of uh, Cardinal O'Connor at that time. And he ended up writing a memoir. And in that memoir, he said, America would have never accepted abortion if they knew that it was being promoted by a bunch of crazy Jews from Greenwich Village. Well, that's true. That's exactly true. Well, then why are the crazy Jews from Greenwich Village now saying that it's a fundamental Jewish value? Why are they saying that now? This is the exact opposite of the strategy that they were uh, so successful in waging against the American people 50 years ago. The Jews were now saying beyond that that any restriction on abortion allowed by the Hobbes decision amounted to Christians imposing their religious views on Jews. I'm not going to cite the articles. There are so many of them. All you have to do is type in those words and you will find article after article. They all agree on this. But there is a corollary to that statement. Okay, so if Hobbes means that restrictions on abortion are imposing the Christian view on the Jews, then having studied logic, I would have to say that Roe that at this time, the Jews imposed their religion on the United States of America. It's inescapable. There is no way of getting around it. And uh, apparently, the Jews who are known for their blindness don't understand it. Now, this is going to be crucial because these, this battle isn't over. You know that. Uh, it's going to go to state houses across the country. And in those state houses, these Jews are going to say that if you uh, restrict abortion, you are preventing me from uh, practicing my religion. And at that point, some pro-lifer is going to have to stand up and say, uh, I, I agree with you. This probably is your religion. Every Jewish organization has said so. But who gave you the right to impose your religion on us? And isn't that what just happened with the overthrow of Roe versus Wade? Didn't the American people finally wake up to this fact and basically say enough is enough and uh, we're going to go back? The states will be allowed now to make their own decisions. Why did they make this? Why did they make this claim? Well, because I think they think they're going to win with this claim. Now, why would they think they're going to win? This is really stupid. Uh, I think the answer is that over this period of time, the Jews took over our culture, and once they took it over, they got Jewish privilege. 
and they have it, and they're not going to let go of it, and they're going to use Jewish privilege now to basically shut everybody else up. What happened, the consequence of Roe versus Wade was basically the, the, the abolition of the idea of equality before the law. That idea disappeared in 1973. Now, maybe they still talked about it, and maybe it didn't happen overnight, but over this 50-year period of time, that concept disappeared completely. And it was replaced by two categories. There's not one category of citizen, there are now two categories of citizen. And the two categories of citizen are, on the one hand, uh, you either are a fetus, in which case you have no rights whatsoever, or you're an aborting, uh, an aborter, in which case you have privilege. And specifically, you have Jewish privilege, because Jewish privilege can be delegated. You don't have to be Jewish to like Levy's rye bread, and you don't have to be Jewish to have Jewish privilege. And so, over this period of time, they would designate certain groups and saying these are privileged groups. And so, the first group uh, at the beginning of this was the civil rights movement, and so blacks had Jewish privilege, even though they wouldn't call it that. And then the feminists had Jewish privilege, because that was a Jewish movement. And then the homosexuals had Jewish privilege, and so now you can't criticize homosexuals, okay? Because of Roe versus Wade, the concept of equality before the law was eliminated from our judicial system to replace by a two-tiered system in which you fit into one of two categories. Everyone was either now a fetus, in which case you have no rights, or he was an aborter, in which case he had Jewish privilege and was above the law. We see this now with the way Merrick Garland is conducting the Justice Department. That is clearly the paradigm of the Justice Department right now. So, examples. The demonstrators have showed up in Charlottesville. Remember Charlottesville? The white boys showed up there. They wanted to defend the statue. They showed up there thinking that they had First Amendment rights to assembly and free speech. Same thing was true of Trump supporters who showed up at the Capitol on January 6th. But unfortunately, they didn't know that they were both fetuses now, which meant they had no rights whatsoever. Antifa, on the other hand, and Jane's Revenge, which went on a spree of burning down churches and pro-life centers after Alito's brief was leaked, had Jewish privilege, and they were above the law. There was a lady, a Jewish lawyer, a Jewish lesbian lawyer, by the name of Roberta Kaplan, who describes herself as a chubby lesbian kike, which shows she has Jewish privilege, because if you say that on Google, you will get banned. And she knows that. So you can quote these people, but if you don't, if you don't have Jewish privilege, you're a fetus. And if you're a fetus, you have no rights, period. And no recourse, so you're gone. She enriched herself by engaging, uh, by waging lawfare against the hapless white boys from Charlottesville. Attorney General Merrick Garland has clearly internalized this road-based distinction and has turned the Justice Department into the American version of the CHECA, which was the extraordinary committee to combat terrorism and counter-revolution in the Soviet Union, which was founded one month after the revolution to show you uh, just how important that form of terror was to maintain the Soviet Union. Uh, they found, this is, this is Salo Baron. Salo Baron is a Jew who has written the history of the uh, Soviet Union, and he said about the Cheka that they found out early on that Russians would not join the Cheka because Russians didn't want to be involved in torturing other Russians. So who did they have to turn to? They had to turn to the Jews and the Latvians, because the Latvians hated Russians anyway. These people waged war against the Russian people for the entire time of the Soviet Union, one way or another. So, because they had Jewish privilege, they could now take this one step further, uh, which is when they said, this is a woman by the name of Poland, this is one of the thousands of articles that poured out after Roe versus Wade, who said now, that being abortion is being, I'm sorry, being anti-abortion means being anti-Semitic. 
Got that? Now, this is going to have serious consequences for Catholics, isn't it? Because in Nostra Tante, remember Nostra Tante? It's the Vatican uh, Council document on other religions, and the most important part is the statement on the Jews. And in that statement, the Vatican Council document, which is part of the magisterium of the Catholic Church, that document says the Church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, what does that mean? All forms? I just told you, I just gave you said, Vicky Poland here just said, uh, being anti-abortion is being anti-Semitic. Is, uh, is opposing abortion a form of anti-Semitism? Does that mean that the Catholic Church has to oppose opposition to abortion? Do you see where this is going? Do you see, do you see the, the train wreck down the, down the track? We're getting close. So just uh, at the same time, this is going on in the press, America Magazine comes out. If you want to know who's running the church right now, read America Magazine, because they are running the church. You want to know, I don't know how many people go to the Latin Mass here. If you want to know why these are being uh, shut down across the United States of America, Read America Magazine, because Thomas Reese is the guy who wrote the article saying shut down the Latin Mass. It came out in April, and Pope Francis, who also is a Jesuit, uh, put it into action within months, okay? So this is America Magazine. This is an article that was written by a rabbi. Rabbis love America Magazine, and America Magazine loves rabbis. So it's not surprising that one would show up here. This is Cardinal Louis Ladaria Ferrer, the new head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, who replaced Cardinal Muller. You remember Cardinal Muller because Cardinal Muller uh, actually represented the Catholic faith and annoyed all of the Jesuits in the Vatican. Anyway, he told America Magazine, quote, it is important for priests to have good relations with the Jews. If you are anti-Semitic, you cannot be ordained. It is against the teaching of the church, no spiritate, said Lewis, Cardinal Louis Ferrer, referring to the document that is a key part of the Second Vatican Council's Accord on Interfaith Collaboration. He concluded, if you don't agree, you cannot be a priest. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Uh, there's one problem here. Has anybody noticed the problem here? No one has defined the term anti-Semitism. We have a, a word in a magisterial document of the Catholic Church, and no one knows what it means. What does it mean? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll make a stab, because uh, it came. this word came into being in the 1870s by a man, from a man named Wilhelm Marr, who wrote, Der Sieg des Judentums über das Germanentums, the victory of the Jews over the Germans. And in that book, he created the word anti-Semitic, uh, which means it's race-based. What he was influenced by Darwin. Everyone was influenced by Darwin in 1870. And he basically believed that Jews had bad DNA. And because they had bad DNA, they could never behave properly. And so it was biological determinism. So if that's what you mean by anti-Semitism, then I am certainly not an anti-Semite, and probably no one in this room is, because this is an obsolete ideology, except in certain circles. Okay? Now, what, whenever you have a, a problem in a magisterial document, what do you do? Well, you interpret it in light of tradition, and that's exactly what we have to do with anti-Semitism, because if we don't do that, there's no limit. And I showed you the outer limits uh, which are current right now, as of yesterday, which is basically anyone who opposes abortion is an anti-Semite. Can the church accept that? No. So then we're going to have to take a step back here and say, well, what do you mean by all forms of anti-Semitism? Do you mean everything the ADL says is anti-Semitic is part of the church's magisterial teaching? Uh, no. No, of course not. So when are we going to have this clarification? Well, today, right here. 
okay? Because don't hold your breath waiting for Rome uh, from this dumpster fire of a papacy controlled by Jews who pay money to America Magazine. I'm not making this up. George Soros gives millions of dollars to Jesuit NGOs. We all know who George Soros is. Anyone that doesn't know who George Soros is? Okay, he is the reason we have anarchy in our cities because he paid for attorney generals and uh, uh, district attorneys in places like Philadelphia, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, all over the country, and they will not enforce the law in a belief, based on a belief that people are equal before the law. There are certain privileged groups. It's clearly Jewish. It's exactly what I said. Okay, it got so bad in San Francisco that uh, the people of San Francisco are hardly conservative Catholics, even though there are conservative Catholics there, uh, voted to recall this guy, Kesa Boudin, because it was out of control. These are the people that are running our culture, running our country, ruining our country, and the church, uh, via the Jesuits, is doing their bidding. We have to be honest about this. You know, I'm not leaving the Catholic faith, but we have to be honest about this. So, question is, we can't accept that being Catholic means pro-abortion. can't accept the fact that anti-Semitism uh, is a disqualifying characteristic for the priesthood because we haven't defined anti-Semitism. So let me give you a quiz here, a short quiz. Who said the Jews are the people that killed Christ and are enemies of the entire human race? Who? Who said that? You know. Who? St. Paul, it's in 1 Thessalonians 2. Okay, now, uh, is that going to generate good relations with the Jews? Did Paul have good relations with the Jews? Have you read the Acts of the Apostles lately? No, he didn't. Okay? I said this, I, I asked that question to a graduate student in theology at Notre Dame. Not an undergrad, a graduate student. She's getting her doctorate in theology at Notre Dame. I said, who said that? And she said, without missing a beat, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> that shows you the situation we're in. All right. Let's talk about how do we get into this situation? In order to talk about that, we have to go back. Now, we're talking about a period, let's say, when from let's say 1965 to 1973 around that time this is when the default settings of the united states of america got changed largely through supreme court decisions like uh roe versus wade Car uh, uh, clarence thomas referred to this school of judiciary jurisprudence as substantive due process. He mentioned that in his decision, his uh, uh, opinion on Hobbes, and he said that basically, all right, you made it up, you knew what you wanted, you, the justices, and you just made up the law to fit your conclusion. That is the, the situation with not only Roe versus Wade, it goes back a couple years to Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, and it goes forward to Obergefell. All of these are sexual issues, and they're all basically decided according to Jewish principles. The fundamental Jewish principle, which is the basis of Jewish privilege, is that truth is the opinion of the powerful. And there's no institution on earth that believes this more fervently than the New York Times. And so we can go back to that period and we can talk about the New York Times. I've already mentioned to you how they decided that they were going to overturn abortion laws. This was a Jewish conspiracy. Bernard Nathanson said so. I'm not making it up. Okay, as soon as Bernard Nathanson stopped being pro-abortion, he disappeared from the New York Times completely disappeared. He, his name never appeared after that. Uh, he gave important testimony before Congress against abortion. He opened the newspaper the next day, no, no mention of his name. This is a man who was there daily 
the whole time the abortion was being fought during the late, late 60s. Okay? That's the battle of retention, but there are other things that were going on at this time. If you're talking about 1967, um, we had the beginning of the Holocaust narrative. It's not the beginning, but it's the beginning of the uh, New York Times heavy-duty involvement in the Holocaust narrative. And that came about because of the promotion of a book called The Painted Bird by a, a Pole, Polish Jew by the name of Jesse Kaczynski. That was a huge bestseller in 1967 only because of the New York Times. As soon as the New York Times jumped on that Elie Wiesel, who's the Pope of the Holocaust, jumped in and said, this is a Holocaust classic, and the sales went through the roof. And I remember, I was in college at that time, and I remember getting handed a copy of The Painted Bird and reading this thing. Uh, that eventually blew up, okay? Uh, so we're talking about something, it turns out the truth isn't the opinion of the powerful, but we're getting ahead of our story here, because at this point, this narrative is rising. You got the, the Holocaust narrative, you got the uh, abortion narrative, and you've got the Israel narrative. Israel had a war in 67, the Arab-Israeli war, and at this point there was a tectonic plate shift among American Jews where they all abandoned the civil rights movement and they all became Zionists. This is from one extreme. The civil rights movement is Marxism. They were all Marxists. All Jews were communists at this point, okay? Uh, that is Jewish internationalism. They all switch from internationalism to nationalism. Zionism is Jewish nationalism uh, because of the war, and so now we have a completely different narrative. They also, at this time, took control of the Catholic Church. Now, how did that happen? It happened through Nostratanti. I've already mentioned the crucial statement, Nostratanti. Uh, the, as soon as they said, this is Nostratanti is handed down in 1965. The Vatican ends, Vatican Council ends in 1965. One of the last documents to come out is Nostratanti. Uh, it said, uh, the, the, the people, the conspiracy, by the way, this full story is in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And it involves a priest by the name of Malachi Martin. Does anyone here know Malachi Martin? Yeah, well, no matter what you think of him, he was a double agent working for the Jews during the Second Vatican Council. You can read the book for the footnotes, but at this point, you're gonna to have to take my word for it because I have Jewish proof. No, I don't have Jewish proof. The goal was to uh, basically clear the Jews of the charge of deicide. Well, wait a minute, didn't I just say that St. Paul said the Jews killed Christ? St. Peter said the same thing. You're going to remove them? It's not going to work. You're not going to get 2,000 bishops together who are going to deny that there's such a thing as 1 Thessalonians 2 or the Acts of the Apostles. So it failed. But it didn't fail because they took over the interpretation of the document. This is what they do. When they fail to get the document, they take over the interpretation. And beginning in 1965, the interpretation is the church finally realized that it was an anti-Semitic institution and they apologized for 2,000 years of beating up Jews. That is the standard uh, explanation as of now. That wasn't the only thing that happened. Griswold versus Connecticut was handed down. That was a crucial step forward for the sexual revolution. That was the Supreme Court decision that decriminalized uh, the sale of contraceptives. At this point, uh, uh, reproduction had been, the reproductive aspect of sexuality had been separated from the unitive act of sexuality. And once that happened, there was no reason that homosexuals couldn't get married. And guess what happened? Homosexuals did get married because they were following the trajectory that was implicit in this rejection of the reproductive nature of human sexuality. Again, I said uh, on one of my blogs, uh, the Jews are behind gay marriage. I was immediately attacked as an anti-Semite for saying, that's an awful thing to say, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out, well, I was quoting Amy Dean, who was a Jewish lady, and she said that in Tikkun Magazine. And suddenly you're confronted here with the, with the, the situation now. If you say it, 
and you don't have privilege, Jewish privilege, you're an anti-Semite. You can say exactly the same thing that the Jew says, but if you have a little note of disapproval in your voice, you're an anti-Semite, you're a bad person. And the Catholic Church should condemn you. Not just the Jews should condemn you, the, your, own, your own church could, should condemn you. The other thing that happened in 65 was that the Jews broke the production code in Hollywood. Now, the, the things are coming together now. They broke the production code Code, uh, which was basically put in place in 1933 to prevent uh, the subversion of morals, using the film as a vehicle for subverting the morals of the American people. That meant no nudity, among other things. No ridicule of the clergy, no blasphemy. Jews love pornography and blasphemy. And they were using films to do it. So how did they do this? They tried in 1964 with a sex farce called Kiss Me Stupid, uh, which starred Kim Novak and Dean Martin, and everybody hated the movie, and it didn't work. So what do they do? They roll out the big guns. What is the big gun now? It's the Holocaust. This is the thing that no one is allowed to object to. And so they created a film uh, called The Porn Girl, which is about the Holocaust. Uh, and it's what I would call the beginning of Holocaust porn, which is a whole tradition that I'm going to deal with in the forthcoming book. But anyway, so there's a pawnbroker, a, a black whore comes in, she takes off her shirt, and there we have bare breasts on the screen. You just broke the code, we're going to have to condemn the movie, call out the Legion of Decency, we're going to boycott. Now in 33, when they started, the Legion of Decency, Cardinal Doherty called a boycott of Hollywood films in Philadelphia, and Warner Brothers was losing 100000 dollars a week. That was real money back then. Uh, in Philadelphia alone, and then it was going to spread to Chicago, and it was going to spread to New York, and the Jews were scared to death, and so they capitulated and gave the code, uh, accepted the code, and that was in there for 31 years. How did they break the code? Well, they brought in the Holocaust. And once you say, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, you're infallible. You have Jewish privilege. This is the problem with our government right now. It is run by people like Anthony Blinken, who begins every discussion with, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, and so he can't talk to the Russians, and what's the result? We're at war, because you shouldn't send a Jew to represent you, because you end up going to end up in a war, if you do, which is where we are now. So, they broke the code, and by 67, there were three pillars of Jewish hegemony over American culture. Israel, abortion, and the Holocaust. You can have pornography, uh, Hollywood uh, as probably the fourth pillar. And between these things, they swept away all resistance because the church, as usual, was a day late and a dollar short. The church is thinking, well, we've got to fight these communists. These communists are bad people. Well, I'm not trying to defend the communists. But there were bad people over here, too, and because these people were so fixated on the anti-communist crusade, which basically was the CIA subsidizing Catholic operations, like Father Peyton's Rosary Crusade, they missed what was happening at home. So within five years, we had Deep Throat, which is a, this is the 50th anniversary of Deep Throat, by the way, in case you want to go out and celebrate. Uh, and that was, uh, at shown in first-run movie theaters. We don't have first-run movie. We have multiplexes now, but there was a time when you had first-run theaters where the film showed up first, and then you had something called the Naves, which were neighborhood theaters, where it showed up later. This is first-run theaters in Manhattan, and the entire staff of, guess which newspaper? The New York Times goes and watches Detroit. They're committed sexual revolutionaries, and no one can identify them as such because, hey, they're just experts, they're newspaper. How did we go from there to here? How do we go from a situation where obscenity, abortion, this type of thing, went from being illegal to being not just legal, it became sacrament. Abortion is the Jewish sacrament. 
I said that. You should believe. You wouldn't believe the response I got when I said that on the internet. Well, wait a minute. Obviously, it's metaphorical. Jews don't have sacraments. The only group that has the sacraments is the Catholic Church. But if they did, if they did, abortion would be one of their sacraments because abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Not only is it their fundamental Jewish value, they imposed it on us. And we have to act defensively if we disagree with them because we're fetuses and they have Jewish privilege. And that's the world we live in because truth is the opinion of the powerful. Now, how did we get in this mess now where the Catholic Church, in order to be consistent, is going to have to say, you have to be pro-abortion to be a good Catholic because being anti-abortion is anti-Semitic and you're not allowed to be anti-Semitic. How did we get in that situation? To understand that, you have to understand the career of one man. One man, and the name of that man is Joseph Ratzinger. How many people have heard of Joseph Ratzinger? He had a, a new gig, this guy had Okay. He had a new gig and he became Pope Benedict the 16th. Okay, so anyway. The important thing now is that Peter Seewald, uh, the German journalist, has now written a biography. And if you want to read my review of it, it's in this month's issue of Culture Wars, okay? Which is available online. And no one's allowed to leave until they subscribe. I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. What was the crucial year here? Crucial year in this regard was 1947. Now the Holocaust is supposed to be about World War II, but all the really important things happened after World War II and no one talks about them. So 46, uh, 47, in German history, the Germans still uh, understand this, was called Das Hungerjahr, the year of hunger. Why was it called Das Hungerjahr? Because the Allies at this point were starving the Germans to death. No question about it. It was called the Morgenthau Plan, and guess who was the author of it? It was the Secretary of Treasury of the United States of America, Henry Morgenthau Jr., who happened to be Jewish and was obsessed with getting revenge on the people uh, that he didn't like. Joseph Ratzinger was 20 years old in 1947. He had just been gotten out of the army in 1945, and he was fortunate enough to be captured by Patton's army, which swept into southern Germany. He was in Munich in an anti-aircraft battle as a teenager. I say fortunate because if he had been captured by Eisenhower's army, he might have been starved to death, because that's what Eisenhower did to German troops in a story that didn't come out until the 1990s. The story is known as the story of the Rhein-Wiesenlager, the Rhine-Meadows camps. I lived on the Rhine uh, from 1973 to 1976. We had English friends who lived in Rheinberg, which was about 20 miles upstream from where we lived, and there was a camp there, a camp for captured German soldiers. Now, I didn't say prisoners of war because that was precisely the issue. Eisenhower refused to declare these people prisoners of war, which means he did not have to follow the Geneva Conventions, which means he was free to starve them to death, which is what he did. The fact that all of them didn't die is more God's providence than it was Eisenhower's intention. There are stories of basically women coming up with food for their husband or something like that, a, a story that's still in my mind, uh, comes up with, she comes up with a bottle of wine. The soldier drinks the bottle of wine, throws it down, and then shoots her. This type of stuff happened with impunity. The American soldiers could do whatever they wanted. When the, when the, my, my, I grew up as a young, uh, a boy, my father's best friend was with Patton's troop and they liberated Dachau. And I saw the pictures of all those bodies. They were real. There were people who really died at these places. When the Americans went to Dachau, they simply lined the Germans' guards up against the wall and they shot them all. This is a war crime. And Eisenhower at this point is burdened with guilt. 
because of the war crimes he's committed, and he's worried about this, this story getting out. And so as a result, he creates an alternative narrative, and that alternative narrative is the Holocaust. Now, it changes over time. So at the beginning, at the beginning uh, with Eisenhower, uh, he showed up at a camp called Ordruf, which nobody knows about. There were dead bodies on the ground. He should have stayed in Ordruf. Because what happened here at this time is you could take a picture of those dead bodies, that's a category of reality, but then you can take, impose your category of the mind on that category of reality and you create very effective propaganda. And that was basically that these uh, people were killed, they were gassed, putting gas chambers and murdered. But he didn't do that because the story hadn't evolved at that point. So what he did was he basically told his psychological warfare operation uh, to get uh, 2,000 people from Flymar and march them to Buchenwald, which is the camp that's about six miles outside Weimar. And when they got there, they were shown a table. And this was going to prove German atrocities. What was on the table? A lampshade, which was supposedly made out of human skin, except that it wasn't. Okay. Uh, two shrunken heads. Who knew that the Germans were involved in shrinking heads? And a pelvis, which was used as an ashtray. These are shown, you can watch the documentary, it's on the internet. There is a man, the, the great propagandist for the CIA, C.D. Jackson, holding these things up. He was the man who, get, who eventually got Eisenhower elected president. And he was the man who was uh, in control of John Courtney Murray, as John Courtney Murray was subverting the Vatican Council document, Dignitatis Humanae. As I said before, Eisenhower was a friend of Morgenthau, and both he and Morgenthau felt that the German people should be punished by being starved to death, and they both did their best to do it. Now, why didn't that succeed? It didn't succeed, first of all, immediately, uh, for first reason, because the Americans, there were good Americans who went over there. And I'm talking about a man, uh, Herbert Hoover, former president, who went around, Hoover was a Quaker, he was appalled at the way the Americans were treating the Germans. He said, this war is over. This is, he, his words, direct quote, Semitic vengeance. Semitic vengeance. He, uh, he had the courage at this time to talk about the Jews who were behind this, and specifically uh, Henry, Henry Morgenthau. So if it had gone in that direction, uh, the Germans would have died. They would have been exterminated. The main reason it didn't happen in Germany was because of Cardinal Frings of Cologne, who basically told the German people, if you're starving and there's a warehouse with food in it, you have a right to break into the warehouse, take the food, feed your family. Eventually, the Semitic vengeance of the Morgenthau Plan was based by the, replaced by the Marshall Plan, which was basically a, a length of money, let's get the German economy back on its feet uh, because we need them as a bulwark against communism because if we keep following the Semitic vengeance, they're going to welcome the Soviet troops with open arms and we're going to lose Western Europe. That was the beginning of the Marshall Plan, but the Marshall Plan uh, did not stop the attack on the German people. It just went into a more subtle form and that was social engineering. which meant the sexual subversion of the morals of the German people. Frings, the same man who opposed the Allies, opposed the sexualization of German culture. He had his own group, it was called the Volksbundbund, the same thing as the Legion of Decency in the United States, and they were under the same kind of attack. The crucial year, again, was right around the same time it happened in America, because it was the same group of people steering both groups. Uh, both in Germany and in, in, uh, in the United States. So in 1964, the film that shows up in Germany is called uh, Das Schweigen, uh, The Silence, if you speak Swedish, I think that's right. And it was intended to be a codebreaker, intended to overthrow the uh, German uh, obscenity laws. It was that simple. 
Now, at this point, this is still, uh, that's 1964, 1959, something crucial happens here. Cardinal Frains meets this brilliant young theologian, and his name is Joseph Ratzinger. At this point, Frains has something on his mind, okay? There is this, going to be this meeting in Rome, it's going to be called the Second Vatican Council, and I need a, a, a peritus, I need an expert. First of all, he needed someone who could see because he was blind at this point. He's an old man, he can't see. He needs someone to help him in this regard. And Joseph Ratzinger is das Wunderkind of the Catholic Church in Germany at this point. No one is smarter than Joseph Ratzinger. And so he signs up and he goes to Rome. Now, while he's away in Rome, while Franz is distracted, the Jews break the code. They break the code in Germany. He's distracted because he's in Rome, and uh, Ratzinger has his own idea of what is happening here, what should happen. Ratzinger basically, through Frings, took over control of the Vatican Council. Uh, he had the Germans behind him. These were the group that were most prepared. They took it over, and the first thing they did was basically reject the whole reason that the Vatican Council had been called. And that is known as the preliminary documents, and they were written by Cardinal Ottaviani, who was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. I know these, they're published. The book is in the Notre Dame Library. I read it when I was doing research on this. And basically, it was a, what's wrong with the church? If you want to know what the challenges facing the church, watch a movie called La Dolce Vita by Federico Fellini. That came out at the same time that Ottaviani is writing the preliminary documents for Vatican II. This is 1960. Both of these men are Italian. They love Italian culture. They're part of Italian culture. And they see a big threat to Italian culture. And guess what that big threat is? It's America. And it's Hollywood. And if you remember uh, uh, La Dolce Vita, if you've seen the movie, they have Anita Ekberg, who is kind of well endowed, and uh, they say uh, he, the Marcello Mastriani, the reporter, falls in love with her, and he's chasing her around Rome, and they, she has a press conference in which they said, uh, Anita, how did you get this role? And she says, it's because I had a big talent. That was the type of image that was flooding Italy at the time. You know, this Hollywood fantasy, this Jewish fantasy of sexual liberation, it's destroying uh, Italian, it's, it's destroying Catholic culture throughout Europe. Ottaviani knows this, and he names two specific threats, psychoanalysis and Hollywood. Well, guess what those two threats have in common? They're both Jewish operations. But he didn't say that, because polite people never say that word. So at this point, here is Ratzinger. Uh, the battle is going on, and Ratzinger suddenly decides, we need a new approach. And so he persuades the council fathers, throw out the preliminary documents, let's do something completely new, let's stop being negative. This is in his memoir that Ratzinger wrote in 69, I believe, about being at the council. He said, we didn't need this negative stuff anymore. And what does he mean by negative stuff? He means uh, Pius X's uh, anti-modernist oath and Pius IX's syllabus of errors which is said basically anathema. You can't do this, this is bad. We don't want that stuff. We want to be positive now because the church has nothing to fear from the modern world. That's in Gallium's best. Well, in some sense, I understand what you're saying, but in another sense, you are saying this at the very moment that the Catholic Church is being about to be destroyed obliterated in a war that you can't even recognize because you just handed down Nostradate, which basically said the Jews were our friends. So what happened? Everybody's friends is fixated on Rome. We got this new era thing and the Jews obliterate obscenity laws in Germany and then they uh, begin the obliteration of obscenity laws in America through their Holocaust film and this paves the way to the Jewish power takeover of the United States of America and the Western world. We're still in Germany and here. Now, Ratzinger, in other words, is a victim of social engineering. I mean, 
God bless him. He was subjected to the most ruthless form of social engineering ever invented by the, in, in human history. And the problem was that if somebody, look, if someone as smart as Ratzinger is blindsided by social engineering, what do you expect of the rest of the German people? Well, nothing. And that's what happened to the German people. Have you, have you heard about der Synodal Weg, the Synodal Way in Germany? It was so bad, even the Pope had to denounce it. It's a catastrophe. If there's ever a dumpster fire, it's Germany. And I say that because I'm half German and lived in Germany and speak the language and have German friends and watch these kids, my students, get picked off one by one by the sexual revolution. You know, bam, that guy just, another guy, I'm marching along, people are dying on either side of me. And no one knows what's going on. And they don't know what's going on largely because of Joseph Ratzinger. Now this man, this, this decision, which said that the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism, even though no one knew what anti-Semitism was or could define it, was a fateful decision and it would come back to bite not only the church, but Joseph Ratzinger as well. And that happened in 2009 when uh, after he became Pope, he lifted the excommunication of the four bishops who were in the Society of Pius X. They had been excommunicated in 1988 because that's a schismatic act and they're not allowed to do that. Uh, John Paul II instituted uh, Ecclesia Dei as uh, making the Latin Mass available to these people. And so there was a moment of opportunity and I seized this moment of opportunity. I went to England and I met with Bishop Williamson. And I said, uh, basically, it's time to end the system. And at this point, Bishop Williamson said to me, I have a document on my desk that says, I accept Vatican II in my tradition. I said, we'll go up and sign it. And then we'll talk about tennis, because we're in Wimbledon. He said, well, and then for the next three hours, he explained to me why he couldn't sign a document, which he admitted Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed. This is part of the tragedy here. It's ongoing. Williamson played a crucial role, the crucial role, in wrecking the papacy of Pope Benedict. And he did that because uh, before this time, uh, he was interviewed by a Swedish TV team. And he told me the story himself. Uh, he was in the room. They were going blah, blah, blah questions. And then finally say, well, that's it. We're, we're gone. They start, camera crew starts packing up. And then suddenly the guy says, oh, by the way, how many people died in the Holocaust? And Bishop Williams said on camera, uh, I think it was 300,000. In doing that, he broke the law. He was in Bavaria. That's a law. You know, the law is it's not one person less than 6 million. If you disagree, you go to jail. So now he's in legal jeopardy. They didn't do anything. They put it in a can until uh, Ratzinger announced that he was lifting the excommunications. The next day, after he lifted the excommunications, every single newspaper in Germany says, Pope allows Holocaust denier into the church. And the Vatican, I remember, I, was, I, was, I remember watching this. If there were ever a deer in the headlights, it was the press secretary, the worst pre press secretary in the history of the Catholic Church made Peter, St. Peter look like the Mosses by comparison. Didn't know what to say. Oh, we, we, we don't deny the Holocaust. Well, wait a minute. What is Holocaust denial? What are you talking about? What does that mean? Again, what's the term like anti-Semitism? Some Jew made it up. The Jew, like we happen to know, is Debbie Lipstadt, who was, had a chair of Holocaust studies at uh, Emory University in, in Atlanta. And she made it up in 1993. Before no, that, nobody knew there was such a thing. So instead of saying, okay, uh, what is Holocaust denial? No, they didn't say that. They fell all over themselves, made fools of themselves, and basically that was the end, the beginning of the end of the papacy of Benedict. Williamson wrecked the papacy. I'm going to be on a podcast with Bishop Williamson on a Thursday. 
in case you want why I don't know whether you can watch it or not. But uh, I plan to bring this up because it's an important thing. So what, here we have the man, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who basically imposed the Holocaust on the Catholic Church through documents like Nostradamus, and then he's destroyed by it. He just he didn't know what to do. He, he, he couldn't share. Well, wait a minute. The Magisterium of the Catholic Church has no position on the number of people who died in World War II. So uh, what's, what's your next question? But he didn't say that. They struggled with the Holocaust thing. Every time they hit the target, every time they struggled, it got worse. Der Spiegel, again, every magazine in Germany had to get a license from a Jewish psychiatrist. And they had to plead guilty to the Holocaust in order to get the license. Der Spiegel is probably like German's Time magazine. Okay, uh, they led the charge against Ratzinger, and finally the effect came in. Ratzinger gave up, quit. Now, if you read Zabal's biography, Ratzinger said at the beginning of his papacy, "Pray that I don't flee when the wolves come." So he must have known some type of flaw uh, in himself, but he did flee. He did flee. He quit. You don't quit when you're when you're under fire. Now we're getting into military metaphors. So you know what the uh, Spiegel said he was guilty of? Fahnenflucht. Desertion under fire. And for once, I agree with Der Spiegel. He, he, he left. He deserted under fire. Because, and because he left, he deserted under fire. We are now confronted with the papacy of Pope Francis. And we're all suffering as a result. So, we now find ourselves in a church which tells us that to be good Catholics, we have to be pro-abortion. Because as Vicki Poland said, being anti-abortion is anti-Semitic. Things cannot go on this way. We have to have a course correction. Because if we don't, it's not the church. The, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. The church is eventually going to come back to the truth, and the truth is what we said at the beginning, which is that Jews are the people who killed Christ, and they're enemies of the entire human race. And now we learn that in an especially poignant way, because we tried to talk to them, and they abused us. So how do we get out of this mess? We get out of it by the grace of God, but we have to cooperate with that grace by standing up to evil. If someone accuses you of being an anti-Semite because you said that abortion is a fundamental value, ask them if it's a sin to criticize Jews, especially if a Catholic tells you this. And if they say yes, then you say, explain to me how Jesus Christ would commit a sin. Did he criticize Jews? Did Moses criticize Jews? Was Moses an anti-Semite? No one, whenever I've been confronted and said that, no one has an answer. No one. That's it. That's the end. You can kill the word anti-Semitism right there by saying that. The Jews themselves put that weapon in our hands. They did it. I, in my wildest dreams, would never think of saying that abortion is a fundamental Jewish. They did it to themselves. And this is the way God works in human history. It's called the cunning of reason. That's what Hegel called it. Die List der Vernunft which basically God allows evil people to pursue their ends and bring about good out of it. And the classic story is Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph finally confronted his brothers and when they came to grain, he said, the, good that you, the evil you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. God is waiting to do this. He will do it, but he wants you to be part of this equation because you are the ones who are going to have to work. You'll be the hands of God because he doesn't have hands. Now, the Jews, as I said, put this weapon in our hands. If we don't use it, this is like spitting in the face of God. Because this is real, this is what history is. It's God's presentation of his plan, and this is part of his plan. And uh, we have a responsibility to take seriously what God is telling us through these ungodly, wicked people. We have a responsibility to work for that end.
Catholics love to talk about the Battle of Lepanto. Remember the Battle of Lepanto? And what was the Pope doing during the Battle of Lepanto? He was praying the rosary. And so we should all pray the rosary. I pray the rosary every day. But there's another part of the Battle of Lepanto. There were actually soldiers on ships down there, and they were actually risking their lives in this battle. And if they hadn't risked their lives, all the rosaries in the world wouldn't have saved Europe. So it comes down to ora et labora. And labora in the culture wars means understanding the signs of the times and acting on the signs of the times. When God puts a weapon in your hand, you don't take it and throw it down and say, I'm too scared to say the word Jew. You don't do that. If you do that, you're going to lose. If you can't say the word Jew, you will not win the culture wars. If you ignore the fact that Jews are now telling us that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value, you're ignoring the signs of the times. Jesus told us to pay attention to the signs of the times because that's God working in human history. Jesus tells us, what I say to you in the dark, it's especially appropriate here, isn't it? Tell in the daylight. What you hear in whispers proclaim from the housetops. This is, we're in the dark. This is a whisper, believe me. I don't have any reach whatsoever. Or maybe I do. But it's certainly nothing compared to the New York Times, okay? This is a whisper compared to what the New York Times is saying. But we have a responsibility to take that whisper and magnify it by saying, if I have the courage to face up to our oppressors, these people are enemies of the entire human race. The church never said we wouldn't have enemies. The church said, love your enemies. I love the Jews because they're my enemy. That makes me a Christian. If you do not proclaim what you heard here in whispers in the dark from the house and proclaim it from the mountaintops, you don't deserve to win the culture wars. Thank you.